Religion has profoundly influenced the sweeping American narrative, perhaps more than any other force in our history, from the time before European colonization to the present. The startup National Museum of American Religion is working to build a museum in the nation's capital that will share the story of what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion, inviting all to explore the role of religion in shaping the social, political, economic, and cultural lives of Americans and thus America itself. Join our host, Chris Stevenson, for season two of our podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, as we follow scholars deep into America's religious history and learn how it can inform and animate us as citizens grappling with complex questions of governance and American purpose in the 21st century. Episodes will be released every Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab. The name Joseph Smith is known to many Americans, as is the faith he founded, once called Mormonism, though recently they have requested to be identified by their original historic name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Joseph Smith is revered by members of that church as a modern prophet of God and derided by others as a charlatan or worse. We thought that to understand American religion, which is really part of the quest to understand America itself, it would be helpful to know, as best we can in an hour, what the historical record has to say about this man. Today we have with us Richard Bushman, Governor Morris Professor Emeritus of History, United States, at Columbia University, to help us understand who Joseph Smith was by discussing his book, Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling, a Cultural Biography of Mormonism's Founder. Mr. Bushman specializes in the social and cultural history of the United States and received his Ph.D. from Harvard University. He is the author of several other books, including From Puritan to Yankee, Character and the Social Order in Connecticut, 1690-1765, King and People in Provincial Massachusetts, and The Refinement of America, Persons, Houses, Cities. We encourage listeners to visit storyofamericanreligion.org and sign up for future podcasts under the contact tab. Thank you, Richard, for being with us today, and thank you for doing the hard work of writing this book. It is terrific. It helps us better understand in a very specific way what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion. Before we dive in, is there something important for us to understand about the title of your book? Rough Stone Rolling is actually a uh, quote from Joseph's fr- friends and himself and uh, at the end of his life. And I think it represented how he felt about himself. And he really was a rough stone. He wasn't educated. He uh, wasn't a polished gentleman. Came from a farm background. Uh, uh, lived on the frontier most of his life. But he felt that through all the... Uh, trials of his life, the buffetings he received, he was gradually getting to be a better person and smoothing up and with hopes that he could be a, sometime a, a polished gem of some kind. Okay, that's helpful. Now, uh, also, you are a faithful member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. 
Uh, why should listeners view you or your book as a trusted, fair, and unbiased source of information about Joseph Smith, whom you view as a religious prophet called by God to fill that ancient biblical role? Well, I, I surely tried as a professional historian to give a, a fair view of Joseph Smith. But the fact is, uh, there's no book written, uh, no biography, and certainly of a controversial character like Joseph Smith, that's not biased in some way. Historians always bring a point of view to the work. And critics of Joseph Smith bring their skeptical views of him. As a believer myself, I brought a more sympathetic view. And really, the reader's uh, decision is what you want to know about Joseph Smith. You want to know what his critics thought of him, the, a skeptic's view, or do you want to know uh, how his friends thought of him, how he thought of himself, and uh, a more sympathetic point of view. So through it all, I tried to stick to the sources, tell things as they were, everything comes uh, out of the record, but it is an effort to give the insider's view of what it was like to be Joseph, Joseph Smith. Okay, fair enough. Thank you for that. And I think you're, I think you're right. Every every author brings his or her biases, so that's a good thing to point out. And it's good to just sort of make people aware who you are, whether in this case you're a skeptic or a believer, and then the readers decide sort of what they want. Um, Joseph Smith lived from 1805 to 1844. Can you tell us briefly? what was happening in United States history during this time so we can have context for what we hear today about Joseph Smith? A lot going on. Uh, probably two of the most powerful forces at work in American society had to do with movement and with democracy. The fact is at this time, uh, this was a farming nation. 70 uh, to 80% of the people derive their living from the land. The farming nation requires space. And in America, with its big families, providing for children meant that there was explosive growth, constant expansion. That meant people had to leave their homes in order to find more land to provide for their children. And that means they're being ripped out of the societies where they were brought up, torn away from families and friends, and they're on their own. So it's, a, it's kind of a destabilizing form of life to be always on the move, being torn away. And religion, of course, is useful as a way of stabilizing yourself, uh, recovering your sense of where you are in the universe, forming little church groups that can substitute for the sad family you left. So there's that part of it. The other part is democracy, um, beginning at the revolution. The big revolution, what's revolutionary about the revolution? Before the revolution, there were two classes of people in political society, the rulers and the people. Class of people, the monarchy, the aristocracy, were thought it was their task to rule um, and the people were to obey. At the revolution, the people take over. Everyone is part of the people. And that um, was, of course, uh, just changed the form of government 
everybody's elected in the government. There's no monarch, no inherited uh, House of Lords. Um, but it also meant that people began to think of themselves differently as being in control of their own lives, of being able to make decisions for themselves. So they challenged authority. They even challenged the authority of doctors and you know, clergymen and others who are thought to be more learned. The people thought they could decide for themselves. And of course, that means that when it comes to religion, they no longer are sort of bound to the traditions of their fathers. They're in a position where they choose for themselves. And that meant the new religion springing up had a chance of getting started because people were independent in deciding oh, what was the kind of faith they wanted. And that's very helpful to a new religion like uh, the church. Okay. So the two themes you emphasize there are democracy and growth. All right. That's very helpful. Helpful framework here. Uh, I think it would also be helpful to us, for us to understand the family in which Joseph Smith grew up. You write this about his parents and their young family a few years before the birth of Joseph, uh, which was in 1805. Quote, they soon knew the embarrassment of poverty. They crossed the boundary dividing independent ownership from tenancy and day labor. Close quote. What does the historical record tell us about the family and the circumstances in which Joseph was born and grew to adulthood? Mm -hmm. Well, they're a farm family. They had a little trade on the side. Uh, Joseph's father was a cooper and they had other skills, but basically they're a farm family. And they're trying to live what, what came to be thought of as the American dream, that poor people could acquire land through hard work, develop a prosperous or a, um, independent and safe way of life. But there's another side to that. In order to acquire land, you always are having to go into debt. No one has the capital, especially not for family, poor families. So everyone is in debt. And that means their property is always at risk. If there's an illness that costs them a lot of money, or if their crops don't uh, mature, if there's a a weather problem or disease, they they can't pay off their their debts and they lose their land. And that's what happened to the Smiths. They, uh, in an ambitious way, not only had a farm, they started they start, start a little store. But in order to get the goods for the store, they had to go into debt. And when there's a little catastrophe in the economy and Maybe they probably made some mistakes themselves and um, they are, are left with these huge debts they can't pay off and they lose their land. And that happens twice, once in Vermont and once in New York. In New York, the mistake they made was to try to build a nice house. They live in a little tiny log cabin, 11 of them in a little three room cabin. They wanted a little nicer place, but that cost them money and put them in debt and they couldn't pay off and they lost their land. So there are people who um, were honorable, they um, were you know, respectable members of the community, but they were poor, very poor. Um, compared to their neighbors, were they basically the same? I mean, were they, were they any poorer or wealthier than the normal person where they were? Yeah, they would be poorer than the normal. Uh, 
it was a huge gap between those who owned land, who had their, their own land. They call it having a competence. They could care for themselves and those who didn't own land. So they were thought of by the people in the community as among the poor parts of the society. Okay. Richard, can you tell us now about uh, those who claimed to have visions and other spiritual outpourings after participating in these intense religious revivals of the early 1800s in that part of the country, uh, uh, and how Joseph's vision story fits into that narrative? Yeah. Joseph has this um, experience when he was very young where he reports that uh, he was in anguish and God and Christ appeared to him. It's a fairly dramatic event as he reported it. But it occurred in the context of revivals. This is a country um, that is um, filled with revival preachers, which is essentially trying to convert people to Christ. And at the heart of those revivals, was the feeling of inadequacy, questioning your own worth. They wanted to know what God thought of them. And Joseph Smith had those same fears. He's concerned about where he stands with, with God, like everyone went to a revival. But he had a second problem. He didn't know which churches to trust. His father had grown to be quite skeptical about the validity of the churches around him, not of God or religion, but which church. So Joseph Smith not only was striving to know what God thought of him, but didn't know where to turn to get the kind of counsel he, he needed. And so he saw this vision, which he later reported and has been made much of, as his reassurance that he was accepted but also guidance about which church to join. And he was told not to join any of them, that God would lead him along to something else. So it all occurred in that revival atmosphere and was a very crucial moment in Joseph Smith's young life. Are there uh, other similar events in the historical record uh, that you have come across? Others seeing visions and angels and God, etc.? Yes, that uh, was a fairly common experience. Uh, many, many, I once made a study of uh, how many reports of visions there were between 1785 and 1820, uh, you know, 35 years there. And there were 33 that were printed up, that were reported in print. And uh, some were uh, visions of heaven where you ascended to heaven and saw Christ. Others, they saw Christ and God. So it's a fairly familiar uh, experience. It would not have seemed unusual. It would seem exotic and kind of intriguing, but not uh, unknown uh, right. to people at that time. Okay. All right. So now we're going to move uh, for a few years, just a few years, same location, um, upstate New York, where, where uh, Joseph's family had moved from Vermont. Uh, and you write this, quote, the publication 
uh, of the Book of Mormon made Joseph Smith a minor national figure. He first received newspaper attention on June 26, 1829, two weeks after he registered the title page with the clerk of the Northern District, close quote. Uh, Richard, we need to understand better what is known and not known about the discovery of gold plates and the later publication of the Book of Mormon from those gold plates, Joseph said, when Joseph was just 24 years old. What can you tell us? Well, that's, that's the departure point for Joseph Smith and for Mormons, Mormonism, because the, the first vision was perfectly understandable within the context of revival culture, as I've just been saying. But when Joseph Smith reports that an angel had directed him to go to a hill, find a spot, open up a stone box he discovered there, and inside it were gold plates, about six inches by eight inches by six inches. So it's this chunk of gold plates and bring them home, that was inexplicable. There was no way to understand what, what those gold plates were. And then when he went on to say that they had writing on them, which he had translated and produced a, a, a long history of two ancient civilizations uh, that he published in a 584-page book, that is truly extraordinary. That is beyond the normal. And it was hard to be believed. He was much criticized for it. And it was disparaged. But that was where Joseph Smith sort of threw down the gauntlet. Here is what I'm going to do that separates me from other uh, religious people of this time. So were there no other similar occurrences of, of persons finding things in the ground that they say were religious or from God? You're saying that, that this is the different thing. This is different. There, there were treasure seekers who looked for gold coins or pirate treasures or everything under the sun. And the Smiths and their neighbors were involved in those practices. But no one found a book, a history book. Uh, in the uh, in the ground, that's Joseph Smith's uh, departure point. We have been talking with Richard Bushman, Governor Morris Professor Emeritus of History, United States at Columbia University, about his book Joseph Smith, Rough Stone Rolling. Mr. Bushman specializes in the social and cultural history of the United States and received his PhD from Harvard University. Once again, we encourage listeners to visit storyofamericanreligion.org and sign up for future podcast notifications under the Contact tab. Richard, we are now going to jump from western New York to a town slightly northeast of Cleveland on the southern shore of Lake Erie. Here you write, quote, Joseph entered a new world when he arrived in Kirtland, Ohio. In New York, he was derided and persecuted. In Kirtland, admirers and believers surrounded him. Within five years, he would build a temple and gather thousands of followers. Close quote. Can you tell us what the historical record indicates Joseph Smith did here? Well, they sometimes say a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country, his own people. And that was true for Joseph Smith. 
people in his little town of Palmyra or Manchester just couldn't believe he could be a religious leader. But when it, it was just the story of the Book of Mormon, when missionaries from the, uh, his circle of followers came to Kirtland, there were people who believed, you know, someone who's a, a respected minister believed, and uh, people of, of standing, a storekeeper, a hatter, people who were respected, um, accepted it. And it was uh, uh, quite startling. And so Joseph Smith migrated with his family and his few followers in New York to Kirtland, and uh, there started to build a city. And people gathered, and more and more people believed. Eventually, by the mid-1830s, there were probably a 1,000 believing Latter-day Saints in Kirtland in the immediate area. And he began to develop other plans. They built a temple, quite an ambitious building, still standing, quite beautiful in its simple architecture. But once again, as with his family, he went into debt to do it. It was, he, his ambitions were greater than his resources. And so he um, had to borrow money in order to put up that temple. And that led to um, stress in, in the society. He tried to start a bank to help uh, continue uh, the um, development of the community. And that led to problems and conflicts. And eventually, um, so much contention uh, arising from, for financial reasons, they had to leave Kirtland. And in 1837, uh, that's what he did. Would you characterize what happened there as a, a net positive for Joseph and the fledgling church, or, or was it a, a net drag on, on their history and what they're trying to do? Well, it's strange because all through his life, he just gets one setback after another, uh, one problem after another. But through it all, the church keeps growing. It's organized. Its doctrines are elaborated. There are more and more missionaries going out and converting more people. So with one hand, he's fighting off his enemies and seemingly facing de de defeat at any moment. With the other, he's building up a very substantial religious organization. Okay. At one point uh, in your book, Richard, you write about the American culture of honor, and that's in quotes, culture of honor, uh, and how it figured into who Joseph Smith was. Now, this culture of honor uh, was uh, prominent then. It's not so much now, so I think our listeners uh, are not familiar with it. Uh, from what you know of the historical record, can you paint for us a portrait of Joseph Smith taking into account this culture of honor, maybe explaining it to us, his times, his personality, and his religious position? Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, we all have a sense of the culture of honor because uh, there's still remnants of it in our society. Um, the feeling that you cannot bear an insult, you have to defend yourself, and a sort of a sensitivity about your standing in the world. It's uh, most fully developed in Southern society, uh, antebellum period, but continues to, to Joseph Smith. 
And his was a family that uh, had had some standing. His um, um, mother was, um, had come from a family where there'd been a minister in the family. And um, they had had some education, the parents. So he was very self-conscious about being insulted. He could not bear to have his honor slighted and uh, would sometimes uh, um, respond, sometimes a little violently to that culture of honor. So he was always sensitive uh, to his to insults of any kind. After he established a militia and had the uh, rank of general, he was uh, upset when people would come to town and uh, not recognize his rank in the army. He wanted to be called Lieutenant General Joseph Smith. So that's the kind of side that's quite obvious uh, coming out of his own society. But I think he had personal qualities, if you're interested in his character as a whole, that really overrode this um, set of cultural responses that were characteristic of them. One was that he was resolute. Maybe that's part of the, the honor too, but he just refused to be discouraged. I mean, we've been talking about all the setbacks he had driven from place to place, persecuted, you know, not only taken to court, but physically driven him and his people from their homes. Uh, but he just would not give up. He never pulled back and he kept expanding his teachings, trying more ambitious ventures. He just would not be defeated um, no matter what. And then I would add one other quality, which we would call charisma, kind of a natural gift of leadership. It was, he had that kind of warmth and emotional vigor that attracted people to him. If you're in his presence, you knew there was power there. Um, Josiah Quincy, a visitor from Boston, later went back to become mayor of Boston, said he'd only known two men who had the natural gifts of leadership. Uh, and one was Joseph Smith, um, that uh, he seemed to be born to command. And that's, you know, from a very um, a person with a lot of experience, with a lot of strong people, Joseph Smith stood out among everyone he knew. Thank you for that portrait. Now, we need to move on to one of Joseph Smith's uh, large undertakings, it seems. And you write this, quote, In establishing his Zion, Joseph joined a large company of utopian community builders. Between 1787 and 1860, 137 communitarian experiments were undertaken in the United States, close quote. Would you tell us about Joseph Smith's Zion and the New Jerusalem efforts? It's really, uh, again, one of the remarkable parts of his life. Um, in 1830, uh, he organizes a church, um, much like other churches, had elders in it, like the Methodists, and had some similar organizational qualities to it. But six months after the church is organized, in the fall of 1830, he's told to do something more. He's to create a society. 
he is told he's to build a city where people are to gather and where they can attempt to establish a society was, you know, based on justice and freedom and equality um, and prosperity for all. And so from then on, through the end of his life, he's not just building up this church, he's trying to build a city. And there are four of them. You know, he starts in Kirtland, then he goes to Independence, Missouri, then to far west Missouri, and finally to Nauvoo, Illinois. In all of those places, uh, trying to construct this whole little society with a, a temple at, at the center of it. That was always his view of this Zion society, sometimes called the New Jerusalem, was a, a temple and then people living in this ideal order um, around him. It's a uh, it's an ambitious vision, but it had a kind of instability broke in, built into it because, because people were to gather to this city, it meant that the Mormons were always in danger from the point of view of outsiders of forming a majority in independence. It, they were gathering so fast that the citizenry began to think the Mormons are going to take over our city. And by democratic means through the ballot box, they'll be able to control all the offices. And that became intolerable for, for him. So each of these cities that he began to put together, ideal as they were, um, were not very stable because uh, the, the neighbors couldn't bear to have the world dominated by Latter-day Saints. How do his efforts at these four places of Zion or the New Jerusalem fit into the larger American religious landscape? Were they outliers? Were they sort of within the norm of religious understanding? And how do they compare or contrast with other utopian efforts? Yeah. Well, um, as you're suggesting, as I did in the book, uh, there are other utopian communities. They tended not to be stable for some of the same reasons People didn't want to have their, <clears throat> their region dominated by people who seemed to be out of the, outside the normal bounds of, of behavior. So the idea of a utopian community was not uh, really unusual, nor was the result of it. The Shakers had troubles. Everybody had troubles uh, when they tried to form these communities. Okay. Can you give us a little bit more detail of the fourth Zion community, Nauvoo? That, that was sort of the culmination of his life almost. He, he died uh, not in Nauvoo, but during that time period, which we'll cover uh, a little bit later. But um, I think our listeners would be interested in understanding sort of what that Zion became at its pinnacle, perhaps. Yeah. Um, Nauvoo is the largest city that he ever created. It had uh, maybe 10,000 inhabitants. I was uh, growing very fast uh, on a very unlikely piece of land, but Mormon converts came because the, the church was there. And he um, sort of blended the, the organization of the church where he's the president and the organization of the city where he becomes mayor and the head of the militia. So 
it really was a blending of church and state in a way that Americans didn't like. It meant a religious leader was controlling uh, the political uh, levers of power. So it uh, flourished. Um, then houses built, there, there's sort of a reconstruction of some of those houses, gives you an idea of how vigorous was. They put up a big temple and um, um, it seemed like it was flourishing until it all fell apart uh, because the neighbors couldn't bear to have the Mormons so strong. They were taking command of Hancock County and the officers uh, of, this, of that county. And so uh, they killed Joseph Smith and, um, and uh, drove out the Mormons that remained within uh, two, two years. Two questions about Nauvoo. Uh, the first being uh, temple. So you've mentioned temple in a few places uh, where he established uh, himself and his followers. Uh, how does temple, the, the, the building, the structure temple fit into the American religious landscape of the time? Temples are a departure. There are maybe one or two other little groups, one in Canada, that tried to build a temple. But uh, the Latter-day Saints were unusual because they were motivated by the idea of restoration, that all of the powers and gifts and practices of the ancient times, the New Testament church, but even the Old Testament Israel had to be recovered and restored in the modern era. And the temple, which is in a way patterned after the uh, temple in Jerusalem, um, was part of that, a critical part of it. I wanted to ask about Americans' view of the Latter-day Saints during the Nauvoo time period. So you begin your book with a visit, and you quoted one of the people who visited a few minutes ago. Uh, you begin the book with a visit from two prominent Americans to Nauvoo to visit Joseph, and you describe a very interesting you know, meeting of them with uh, Joseph standing outside a, a building. Um, what, what, were, what were the views of American elites, American political leaders of the saints, the Latter-day Saints during the Nauvoo time period? Well, they really see them with double vision. On the one hand, Joseph Smith's claims to have see an angel be a prophetic voice to write new scriptures seemed absurd. It was just too outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy uh, or a really just rational understanding of, of how the world worked. On the other hand, they were very sympathetic to the treatment, to the saints in the treatment they received as a persecuted people. And by 1837 or so, Joseph Smith, when he had visitors, would not just only talk about his religious experiences, but their sufferings at the hands of their neighbors. And there were lots of people who felt that this was unjust. So that American idea of religious liberty, everybody should be able to worship as they please. All that sort of worked in the behalf of the, the Latter-day Saints, even though 
um, they thought their belief was sort of off, out of bounds and couldn't be taken okay. seriously. That's interesting, the double vision you described there. Richard, you uh, later in the book introduced a story about Joseph Smith and polygamy in this way, quote, In public and private, Joseph spoke and acted as if guided by God. All the doctrines, plans, programs, and claims were, in his mind, the mandates of heaven. They came to him as requirements, with a kind of irresistible certainty. The revelations weighed him down with impossible tasks. Close quote. We need to know in brief, Richard, what the historical record tells us about Joseph Smith and polygamy. Will you help us understand this? It's hard to understand not only uh, people who are not Mormons, but Mormons themselves have trouble understanding polygamy. It just seems so contrary to the way we think of a family life. It's very uncomfortable and doctrine. So it's... Uh, accepted as a fact of our history, but is not very pleasing to most Latter-day Saints. And for the most part, we felt like um, it grew out of Joseph's sense that he had to restore everything. He had to bring back the temples. And when he read in the uh, in Genesis about the various wives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob practice of polygamy, he thought that, too, was to be part of the restoration, and that's what his revelations uh, uh, told him. Uh, it was hard on him at the same time. We think probably received the revelation in 1830. It was a long time before he tried to put it into practice, really a decade before he really took it seriously. Um, and then he had many wives. He had probably over 30 wives sealed to him um, during, during his lifetime. So it remains a little bit of a mystery to Latter-day Saints themselves about what's going on other than this attempt to, uh, to uh, follow the practice of olden times. In recent years, really in the last five or 10 years, scholars have began to un uncover a frame of mind that probably motivated Joseph Smith and that was his deep desire to unite people in a great family, sort of the family of humankind. And he saw polygamy as a way to do that. It wasn't this that you would have a lot of wives and set up a household, but that all these families would be linked together through a ceiling, a marriage ceiling, or through a a child sealing, because he had many people sealed unto him as um, adopted children. Even after he was dead, there were people sealed, uh, sealed to him. And this was all an attempt to create a family order that would accomplish, uh, eventually encompass all of humankind and relate all people to God. We don't know uh, exactly what all that means, but something like that seems to have been motivating Joseph Smith in uh, instituting polygamy. Can you tell us a little bit about Joseph's approach to what he called the revelation? So somewhere in the book, you talk about him living from revelation to revelation, and it's intimated here in what I quoted that 
that he saw these things as mandates and that he had to do them and that they were very heavy. Can you elaborate a little bit about Joseph Smith and what he called these mandates, these revelations, and how they ordered his life, what they did to him? Yeah. He has a very interesting relationship with God. You know, he's a prophet, and we, um, we think probably prophets, you know, they communicate with God. In places, the revelations themselves and Joseph's own words give the impression he thought of God as a friend, someone he would go to, someone who was going to help him. On the other hand, in other places, he's frightened of God. He's fearful that he will displease him and that he will be rejected of God in some way. And so when these uh, revelations came to him, on the whole, if he received a revelation, he would immediately set about to, to fulfill it. If the revelation said you're to go to the city of New York to preach the gospel, and within a month, he'd be on the road uh, to New York, or whatever he was, he was asked to do. So he was very obedient. But uh, he felt the pressure of that in the polygamy revelation, even though he knew it would be hard for people in the church to swallow. It would be even harder for people around him. So he delayed and delayed. And finally, there's someone reported him as saying, it was as if an angel with a drawn sword had appeared to him, said, you must, you must follow this revelation. So he did his best to carry it out for the next uh, two years and the very end of his life. Thank you. Okay, let's move to the death of Joseph Smith in June of 1844. Uh, he was killed by a mob while in a jail in Carthage, Illinois, south of Nauvoo. Uh, the city he founded, along with his brother Hiram. Richard, you write this about the fury that led to this act. Quote, It was not a hatred of the alien. The role of a prophet was well known to every believer in the Bible. It was more a fear of the familiar gone awry. Joseph was hated for twisting the common faith in biblical prophets into the visage of the arrogant fanatic. Frustrated and infuriated, Ordinary people trampled down law and democratic order to destroy their imagined enemies, close quote. Can you elaborate on the why of Joseph's assassination? Yeah, I, uh, I use the word uh, fanatic or fanaticism there because there's been uh, scholarly work done recently that shows that throughout uh, our history, I mean, Western civilization history, the image of the fanatic has loomed large. This is the person who claims to have revelation and claims absolute authority in the name of, the, of that revelation, insisting that all must obey, going even to the point of using force, violence to uh, compel belief. And of course, the standard figure that represents all of this is Muhammad. He is the fire and sword prophet who conquers all, insisting on revelation and insisting on compliance with the revelation. And this sort of image is floating about in the culture uh, available to, 
to uh, anybody who uh, you know re reads or is aware of things. And as Joseph Smith insisted on his revelation, he's immediately suspected of wanting to use force. And then when he moves to Nauvoo and fearful of being attacked again, organizes this huge militia, 5,000 people. It seemed like he was really setting himself up to impose his religion on everyone uh, through his army. And so that terror of what might be um, exaggerated everything that happened. When he closed down a newspaper, which everyone now realizes was a mistake on his part, that seemed to be clear evidence that the, the fanatic was moving forward like Muhammad to uh, enforce his religion by violence. So in the historical record, do people uh, mention or reference Muhammad in relation to their fear of, of the Mormons? Frequently. He was frequently referred to as, uh, as Muhammad. Okay. Thank you very much. Richard, as we conclude, do you want to share any lessons or takeaways from the book, either in terms of important historical transformations you charted or in terms of helping us better understand our present moment in American religious history and in American history in general? Well, I suppose there are a lot of things could be said. Uh, what um, interests me most at this point is that if there's everyone, anyone who was obscure when he got started in life, it was Joseph Smith, no little education, no standing in society, very poor, um, not particularly admired, uh, no place in the social order. And yet out of his personal revelations comes a religion, a fairly vigorous religion that's grown and has established uh, a place for itself in, in society. And it seems to me that we need to be sympathetic to the, these sort of obscure sources of religious inspiration. And one of the benefits and blessings of American life is that uh, people with uh, no credentials at all can have a voice and who knows what will come out of it? What kind of achievements of it? Uh, not everyone thinks the Mormons were the, uh, always a positive influence, but they did settle the West. They had a huge role there, most of the most desolate parts of the West. And they have established a, a, a bastion of family values, which the Mormons have emphasized. So, there are good things that can come from very obscure places. And I think we must be sure that we create an environment where people can try, uh, try out their faiths and, and move ahead as their consciences lead them. Thank you. We have been talking with Richard Bushman, Governor Morris Professor Emeritus of History, United States at Columbia University, author of Joseph Smith, rough stone rolling. We hope listeners come away from today's podcast understanding a little more about what religion has done to America and what America has done to religion. 
and see how necessary the ideal of religious freedom as a governing principle is for America to fulfill its role in the world. We encourage listeners to visit storyofamericanreligion.org and sign up for future podcast notifications under the contact tab. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for being with us. It's been very, very enlightening, and I hope you've enjoyed the time with us as well. I have very much, Chris. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. The podcast series, Religion in the American Experience, is a project of the National Museum of American Religion. Episodes are released each Monday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Register for notifications on our website, www.storyofamericanreligion.org, under the sign-up tab.